going to ask you if you would stand if you're able for the reading of the scripture. You saw it up there on the screen. We're in Romans chapter 7, verses 13 through 25. Uh, a little bit of a longer text tonight than we've done in the last few weeks. And also a text which you're going to see as we read through it. There's some phrases that kind of read like tongue twisters. So I'm going to probably be a little bit overly dramatic in my reading just so uh, it makes sense. Uh, you'll see what I mean as we get into it. If you would follow along with me as I read for this now. God's word says this. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual. But I am of the flesh. Sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Let's pray. Lord, I ask and pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. And Lord, I even pray for my allergies tonight that is making it hard to speak and to read, that you would clear those up in this next few minutes so that your word would go forth unimpeded. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for standing. Go ahead and be seated. And yes, as I prayed, I... Uh, I'm a little bit congested and stuffy tonight, so I've got my cough drops up here. I, uh, my emergency need is taken care of. Um, but then the other thing is, you guys know, I'm very, I'm very, uh, I use my hand gestures a lot as I preach, so holding the mic is very unnatural for me. If I start to do this and talk at the same time, just, just give me a sign, okay? Uh, and tell me to remind me to hold the mic close to my face as hard as it is. I'm going to do my best. I promise. So, as you see up here on the screen, tonight's title is The Limits of Knowledge. In your bulletin, there's a question mark behind knowledge, which is another typo that made it into the bulletin. We had a really rough week this week uh, in the office, but we'll do better next week. But really, this is the correct way of putting it. The limits of knowledge is what we're going to be talking about tonight. And before I get into where that's coming from in the text, I just want to make an observation, or I guess more accurately, I'm going to share an observation that I made years and years and years ago when I was a teenager. I think it was the late 90s, maybe early 2000s. Yes, I was a teenager then. 
I noticed this shift in the English language. All of a sudden, things that formerly had been described as bad or wrong or evil were all of a sudden being, uh, there was another word being used to describe them. And the word was ignorant. Ignorance was the key word of the day that everything seemed to be chalked up to ignorance. That is lack of knowledge or insufficient education. So especially societal evils, things that people would talk about with racism or misogyny or greed even, it was all chalked up to ignorance or lack of true knowledge. And so even as a teenager, I remember kind of having mixed feelings about this. On the one hand, I really kind of saw some truth in it. Especially growing up in the South, I, I knew a lot of people. I had friends that had horrible views on things in society. And they were views that were born directly out of them not knowing much about history or biology, or in some cases, even like US government and how it works. So in that case, lack of knowledge really did sort of feed into these very wrong-headed views that we were seeing. But on the other hand, this idea that ignorance was this, uh, the, the key reason for all evils in the world, it kind of felt hollow to me. And the reason why is because it carried with it an assumption that I wasn't comfortable then and I'm still not comfortable with now. And the assumption is this, that the solution to evil in the world is knowledge. It's better education. It's being equipped with more info, better info, the right info. And if that happens, then everybody's good. I wasn't convinced by that back in the day, and I'm still not convinced by that now. And not because of some high-minded philosophical reason. I'm not convinced about that because I know myself. I was a person even back all those years ago, and I'm still a person now in my 30s who often knows the right thing to do, but still does the wrong thing. And if you want to talk about knowledge, you want to talk about education, I've, I've actually studied the scripture a lot, God's word to us about how we are to live, what he requires of us. I've got a master's degree in it. And yet more often than not, I still do the wrong thing. I wish I could tell you that the reason I struggle, the reason I fail and sin is because I don't know better, but it ain't true. I do know better more often than not when I still, still fail. And even though there's definitely some cases where people do wrong because they don't know better, more often than not, people do, do wrong despite knowing better. And then here's the craziest thing of all. People do wrong a lot of times, even though that they know better and even though they desire to do the right thing. Isn't that crazy? It's not just a matter of, of them knowing it or not. Sometimes people even want to do the right thing. They want to do the good thing, and yet they find themselves at that moment of action being unable to do it. So when our culture began using ignorance as sort of the catch-all of why things go wrong, I saw some truth in it, but then I also saw a lot of hollowness because knowledge doesn't make people good. Education doesn't eradicate evil. 
And knowledge in itself is insufficient to make us be the people that God calls us to be. I believe that's the key idea behind the text that we read tonight in Romans 7. You, you know, you could say, wait, wait a second, Josh, I didn't see anything about ignorance or knowledge or anything come up in the text. But what you did see come up in the text often was the phrase we've been very familiar with throughout Romans 7, and that is the law of God. In Romans 7, speaking, the law of God is his, his moral revelation to men and women like you and I. His word telling us what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil, what the Lord requires of us, and also, thank God, what he's done for us in the gospel. But all these things are given to us to show us, to reveal to us what it is that is right and what is good. God's law gives us the knowledge of the right thing. However, God's law does not empower us to actually do the right thing. And so I even think I have up on the screen just sort of kind of a, just a summary of that. This is basically the summation, I think, of all of Romans 7 has told us about God's law. It says this, the law is incredible at teaching you what is good, but it is terrible at empowering you to do what is good. The law is wonderful at showing you the right thing, but it is horrible at propelling you to actually live out the right thing. And that's how we're able to say, along with Paul in Romans 7, that the law is just and holy and good, yes, but it's also insufficient by itself to truly make us the people that we're called to be. The prime example of all this in Romans 7 that we just read tonight is the story of this person. We're going to call him tonight the divided man. The divided man all throughout this text is somebody that's sharing with us their kind of like psychological struggle between knowing what is right and doing what is right between desiring the good thing and actually living out the good thing. And they get to a point at the end of it all where because of that division and because of that divide, they, they conclude it all by saying, oh, what a wretched man I am. <laughs> Who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? And it's that divided man that's going to kind of give us the up-close and personal look at the limits of knowledge. And how the law can be so good at showing us what is right, but not that good in empowering us to do what is right. So as we look at the divided man, we're going we're gonna to divide the divided man into three component parts. Um, I think I've got it up here on the screen. Number one will be the demonstration. The idea behind that is he's going to demonstrate for us this divide between knowing and doing. Number two is a quandary that we're going to have to kind of deal with with this text. And finally, we're going to look at the divided man's hope. Oh, there is great hope. Even though most of the text is taken up with this fight, this struggle, it ends with a powerful word of hope. And we're going to end there too. How am I doing on time? Oh, so-so. Hey, but we got started later because of the, the microphone issue, right? So we had y'all bake out there in the sun in the courtyard for way too long. Sorry about that. Hope you bring your sunscreen in future weeks. It seems like there's not a lot of shade out there, but that's uh, the dermatologist in me coming out. Okay, so let's look at the demonstration part, the beginning of this. I want us, you guys to see a handful of different scriptures that I've just sort of cherry-picked out of the text that give us a little bit of a flavor 
of this fight that's going on within this guy who's describing his life. So for instance, verse 15 is the first place we see it very clearly. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Yikes. Actually, let's go ahead and do the next one too. I think it's verse 18. Up here on the screen. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So to put this into practice, let's just do a case study. I mean, let's say the man here, he knows that God has told him that he is to love his neighbor as himself. And so he says, I know that that is what God commands. I know that it is what is good. I even know that there is great blessing and obedience of loving my neighbor as myself. I believe that. I want to do it. But when the rubber meets the road and it's that moment for a person, you, me, the, the guy that's divided here, to actually love their neighbor, actually to do something selfless, to die to self and, and, and look out for their welfare, he can't do it. He finds that in that moment he chooses selfishness or greed or complacency instead. And this desire to do what is right, to do what God law said, has no ability to actually carry out in real life what God's calling us to do. So we might say, why is that? What's going on internally that makes it like that? Well, we get a little bit of a hint deeper on in this passage with verse 22. Check this out. It says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Now, that's a lot of, a lot of big words, or maybe not big words, but just sort of vague words. Uh, let's define members here first. We've actually done this before, that words come up in Romans, and we've talked about how that's the constituent parts of a person. So your hands, your feet, your eyes, your nose, those are all members of your body. But for a person, it goes beyond that, not just their body parts, but their personality, their intelligence, their wit, their humor, all the component parts that make you, you. And so what we have described here is this guy saying that, hey, in my soul, in the core, the essence of who I am, I have this desire to live out God's law. But when it goes from that into being translated into real world action through my members, through my body, through my mind, through my humor, through my intelligence, whatever it might be, there's a disconnect. And the desire can't cross the threshold into real world action because of sin. Because of that old enemy of ours that we inherited through our father Adam and who makes it so that whenever we want to live out the desire of God's law, our members are so infected by sin and its corruption that we seemingly can't do it. At least we can't do it in the way that we want to, in the way that God requires. This is the key piece of what makes this guy just so, uh, I want to use a synonym for divided, but maybe it's the allergies. I'm having trouble thinking of one right now. So I'll just stick with divided. He longs to do what is right, but finds that when it comes to actually enacting that in the real world, he cannot. Does anybody resonate with that? 
Joy says, we better. Amen. I want to move on now, though, to what we call the quandary. You know, so far I've been talking about this divided man. I haven't given him a name. I've left it vague. And that's because the quandary of this text is, who is he, actually? Who is the I that we read all about when it says, I do not do the things that I want, but instead I do the things that I hate? I know your gut reaction is to say, Josh, we've said it billions of times in our study on Romans. It's the Apostle Paul that wrote this. So when he says, I means himself. Easy, right? Okay. But then we got to follow it up with another question. If it's the Apostle Paul referring to himself, when is he talking about? Is he speaking of his present day, uh, current situation as a believer in Jesus, following him right now as a Christian? Or is he speaking of his experience before he knew? When he was a, a, a God-fearing Israelite that was desperately trying to obey the law but kept finding that he couldn't do it fully, is that what he's talking about? Or we could add to it even more options than that. Maybe he's speaking with just this not so much of autobiography, but he's just speaking of the perspective of mankind in general and trying to give us a sense of, of the fight that we go through as children of Adam. All that to say... The main um, burden that most people write about when they come to this part of scripture is trying to identify who exactly Paul is speaking about here. If he's speaking about himself, and if he is, at what point in his life is he talking about? So this would be normally the part of the sermon when I'd say, this is what I think, and this is how we should interpret this. But I'm not going to do that tonight. Instead, I'm going to give you guys some homework. I want you guys to speak about it amongst each other and talk about it and challenge one another with it. And the reason why I'm giving it to you as homework is because two reasons, really. One is I'm confident, and I'm not alone in this. Most of the commentators would say the same thing. I'm confident that whoever you decide the I to be in this passage, it does not change the main point. And that is the limits of knowledge and how the law can show us what is right but can't empower us to do what is right. That won't change, regardless of what you decide. But then here's the other reason. I, like, my dream as a pastor is that when you leave church, when you go home with your wife and your kids, or when you hang around here in the sanctuary chatting with your friends, or you go out to eat somewhere, that you continue to dig into God's word together. You continue to sharpen one another for God's word. And you don't just have me or Brian or one of the ruling elders be the final word on the scripture. You talk about it amongst each other. You study it. You challenge each other. You become a Berean, so to speak, which is a reference to the portion of Acts where Paul goes to the city of Berea. And it says that each day he met with them and preached the gospel. And then later that day, they would go home and they would search the scriptures to see if what he said was actually true. So I, I want you guys to be talking about it and what you think. Who do you think it is? What's the evidence that you would provide? What are the drawbacks to your position and what are the advantages of it? Now, I'm not going to leave you totally just hanging. I'm going to give you a couple of things to, to work through, okay? So for instance, 
If you're somebody here that thinks that this is obviously Paul speaking about his experience as a Christian, then there's a few hurdles that you got to get over. First one is this. Why does he keep talking about still being a slave to sin? Two times here he says that I was sold under sin, that I'm a captive to the law of sin. That's pretty wild for someone to say, especially since in all of chapter 6, he's repeatedly told us that we've been freed from sin. We're liberated from it. It's not our slave master anymore. So why would he talk about himself being a slave to sin if he's describing his experience as a Christian? Number two thing to think about, why is the struggle so one-sided? If you read through this text, it's a guy that is talking about the desire to do the right thing, but he can't do it, and that's always the case. It seems like it's less of a struggle and more of just this one-sided beatdown of a guy that can't do anything right. And finally, this is maybe the most important hurdle you're going to have to jump over. Where is the Holy Spirit in all of this? This whole text that we just read is one where a person is describing their struggle between wanting to do what is right and not being able to, and they don't once mention the power of the Holy Spirit. If this is true, truly Paul speaking as a Christian, why doesn't he speak about the Holy Spirit? That seems crazy. Those are some things to be wrestling with as you speak to each other about it, but not to just do one side of it. Let's look at some hurdles from the other position. So you pull up the next slide. We've got some issues for folks that think that this is obviously Paul before he was a Christian. If that's your position on this, you're thinking like, oh, this is Paul talking about before he knew Jesus, then here's some things you've got to get through. One, why does he use the present tense? If he's talking about his past experience, why not say I was or I did or I wanted? He'd done that in the paragraph right before, but in this one, he purposely jumps to the present to talk about what I want now. The second thing, delight in God's law. Do you remember that portion? It was verse 22. He says, I delight in God's law in my innermost being. How would a non-Christian be able to say that? We've been told in Romans that folks that don't know God, they suppress God's law. They try to bury it. They try to ignore it. They don't delight in it. That's the kind of language that only someone that knows God uses. So why would he use it if he's talking about his pre-Christian life? And then finally, the very ending sequence. I hope you heard it as I read at the end, but there's this beautiful answer to the question, who will deliver me from this body of death? And in verse 25, he says, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What a great place to end the chapter right there and to say amen. But he doesn't end there. He continues and says, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Almost as if to say that it's still a battle raging even after, thanks be to God in Christ Jesus, my Lord. So I'm giving you these talking points, again, because I want you to chat with each other about it. I want you to search the scriptures together, and I want you to face up to some of your assumptions that you have about the Christian life that may be wrestling with a question like this, 
would teach you a lot and show you a lot. I want you to be equipped Bible readers, I guess is what I'm saying. And the cool thing about this is, like I said, whatever you decide, it doesn't change the main, the main takeaway from this text. But then there's also this piece. Whatever you decide, it does not become the end-all, be-all of what sanctification looks like in the Christian life. Some of y'all are probably so scared to say that, oh, the I there is Paul as before his Christianity because you're afraid that what that would then mean is that the Christian life is a life of moral perfection with no struggle. No, that ain't the case. Even if this is Paul talking about his pre-Christian experience, we know from multitude other Bible verses that struggle and fight and failure and repentance, like we did in the Confession of Faith today, is part and parcel of what it means to follow Jesus. This is not teaching that a Christian doesn't struggle. Far from it. And on the reverse, you might be so afraid of saying this is Paul and his Christian experience because you're afraid that people would come away with the impression that there's no triumph, there's no victory in the Christian life, that it's all just a bunch of, I want to do it, but I can't do it. That wouldn't be the conclusion either. There are multitude of verses that tell us that there is true victory over sin. There's progress in the Christian life. God, through his Holy Spirit, brings you along to grow in grace and holiness and maturity. So I'm turning over the homework to you guys because I know that no matter where you land, it's not going to seismically alter what you think about sanctification in the Christian life. The struggle's still real, and triumph in Christ is still real. So let's do the last piece. I'm already over time. I, I blame the handheld mic thing. It totally threw me off and, you know, made me more long-winded than I normally would be. So... The hope. There is hope in this passage, believe it or not. Most all of it describes the struggle, the division. But in verse 24 and 25, we get this. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. I love how this passage doesn't say much. It's almost just like a whisper of this man, Paul, wherever he was on his Christian journey, saying, I am so crushed by failure and shame and sin. Who will deliver me? And all he can get out is just the whisper. Jesus. Jesus has got me. Here's the hope of the divided man. He knows that even though he falls on his face in failure, even though he continues to sin, even when he does not want to, even when he keeps falling over his feet time and time and time again, every single moment he fails, Jesus Christ is patient and long-suffering to be there with him, to pick him up and say, I died for this. You're forgiven. I'm not giving up on you. I'm not saying you've blown your 15th chance and that's all you got. No, I died on the cross and I said it is finished because I died to cover your sin, as many as they are. And now I'm going to pick you up 
and say, come on, let's try again. That's the hope of this divided man. Like we talked about before, that is the same hope, regardless if this is Paul pre-Christian or post-Christian. It's the same hope, regardless of this Paul speaking of humanity in general, or Israelites in particular. It's the same hope if it's referring to me or you. I messed up the pointing there. Me or you. It's the hope of getting to the end of yourself and all you have the strength to do is say, Jesus, help me. And in his patience, he's there saying, I died for this. Let's go. I love this passage, even though it is confounding trying to figure out all the nuts and bolts of what's going on here. I love it because it captures my heart as someone that continues to live this life, this Christian life, even as a pastor, living a public Christian life and still failing so often. Still having to, to call many of you guys and apologize for a rude word or a, uh, ignoring you or being selfish and prizing myself over the people of my congregation. I'm consistently messing it up. And Jesus Christ is consistently saying, I died for that, Josh. You're forgiven. And I hope you don't hear that to say that we just stay in this passive place of being like, hey, I'm going to mess up and that's okay. Jesus has got me. No. The hope we're going to see next week in Romans 8 is to get us past this place of division, to get us into a place where the Holy Spirit is propelling us to mature and to grow and to be better. Amen. But what you need to hear tonight, what Romans 7 gave us tonight, is just that tired whisper. Jesus, help me. And he answers that. I really want to take another cough drop, but we're also about to do the Lord's Supper. And that wouldn't, that wouldn't work well. Oh, speaking of which, I didn't get communion elements on my way in. Does anybody have one? Oh, thank you so much. Hey, by the way, I 